This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Amara, Emerson, Joanna, Susanna, and Noah. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. We have two this time, one from Amara and one from Emerson. First, Amara asks, how do you choose what to preach about? There are two ways to answer this question. We can talk about this on the practical level and we can talk about it on the spiritual level. Let's start with the spiritual level. The way that I choose what to preach about is through prayer and the direction of the Holy Spirit. That's true for deciding what text to preach, and it's also true for deciding what to say about that text, because obviously you can't say everything that there is to say in the course of just one sermon. To be perfectly honest with you, I don't always understand how it is that I'm being led, but I do have confidence that God is guiding the process, often in spite of me. Now, on a practical level, I follow certain principles. For the most part, for example, I always want to be preaching through a book of the Bible. Now, it's okay from time to time to look at certain topics or to jump around with a particular theme in mind, but I don't want to do too much of that because it's important for us to gain Bible literacy, and the best way to do that is to take it line by line, book by book. Also, I try to focus as much as possible on the big picture, the key idea or theme in a passage, and to emphasize how the pieces connect together and how one passage connects to another passage. The reason I do this is that I grew up believing that the Bible was full of thousands and thousands of these random, unconnected stories, and I didn't really understand how it all fit together. What I've found, though, is that if you understand the big picture, then a lot of those details become easier to explain. So that's why I focus on the big picture. That means I'm less likely to preach on the minutia of interpretation, on different arguments over fine points, or on hot cultural topics that everybody is focused on this week. I'm more likely to be preaching about Jesus, about the plan of salvation, and what that means to us. And now Emerson asks, why didn't God destroy Satan right when he rebelled against God? Emerson, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, there's an interesting phrase that Paul uses, and I think it helps us understand why God didn't just destroy Satan right then and there. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Now think about those words, when the fullness of time had come. That means when the timing was right, when the moment was exactly correct. It means that God has a sense of timing and that all of this time is important to him and that it's important to him that that all of history has a chance to play out. 
When you think about it, everything that will ever happen is already known to God. There's no mystery in the mind of God where the future is concerned because God is all-knowing. But he lets things play out because it's important to him that we all have our existence on this earth. His patience shows how important we are to him. He showed a similar patience in the Garden of Eden. Remember, the penalty of sin is death, and when Adam and Eve sinned, they expected to be destroyed right then and there as punishment. Instead, God showed them mercy, and since they were our first parents, by showing them mercy, he showed us mercy as well. By letting them live, he let us live too. Of course, it's tempting sometimes to wonder why God doesn't just get it over with. But the Bible teaches us that God loves each generation. His mercy is shown through his patience. But when the time is right, God will do justice. We can be sure of that. And now it's time for the big question, which comes this week from Joanna. Let's give Joanna a round of applause. Here's Joanna's question. Does Jesus still have wounds from the cross, even in heaven? Well, Joanna, there's an easy way to answer this, and there's a more complicated way. We'll look at both, but let's start with the easy stuff. After the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples. Uh, In the Gospel of John, you find this story. This is in John chapter 20. And one of the disciples, a guy named Thomas, he's not there when it happens. And afterwards, when the others tell him that Jesus appeared, he doesn't believe them. He is skeptical. That's why we call him Doubting Thomas. He actually says to the other disciples, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then, eight days later, Jesus appears again, and he says to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And of course, Thomas then confesses his faith. He says, My Lord and my God. So, when we consider what happens in this account, we can say for certain that after the resurrection, the wounds of the cross were still on Christ's body. That's the easy part. Now it gets complicated. The question is, are those wounds still there? Does Jesus still have a body? And if he does, is it the same one? Okay, so first let's consider whether Jesus still has a body. Now the answer to this one is yes. The story of Doubting Thomas makes it clear. And in Acts 1, we also see Jesus' body ascending to heaven. It's not that his spirit leaves his body and goes to be in heaven, but he physically ascends to heaven. So the question is, is that body that he has today the same body that he had back then? So here, let's listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith has to say. This is in chapter 8 of the Confession in section 4. It says, On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his Father. 
So the body he was raised with is the same body he ascended with, and the body he ascended with is the body he has now, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Now, this is important because the author of Hebrews says that what makes Jesus the perfect high priest is our shared humanity, that he is fully human, that he can sympathize with us in our weakness. Now, of course, the thing that you have to wonder is if Jesus has a glorified human body now and it still has the mark of those wounds on it, then does that mean that our glorified human bodies will still have wounds and scars and wrinkles and whatnot? Well, to be clear, I don't think we can answer this question definitively. This is something that the Bible just doesn't really get into. But it seems to me that there is a difference between Christ's wounds and our own. Our infirmities are the result of sin. They represent corruption. Whereas Paul describes having a spiritual body as putting off corruption and putting on incorruption. The wounds of Christ, by contrast, are not blemishes. His wounds are glorious testimony to his work of salvation. And seeing it that way might help understand how he could still have these wounds in his glorified body. And yet we, when we are glorified, may not bear similar hallmarks. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first one comes from Susanna. She asks... When we say, oh God, we don't have the H in the word, oh. It's hard for you to tell listening to this question instead of reading it. But when Susanna writes, oh God, it's just the letter O. And then when she writes the word O at the end, it's spelled O-H. So that's the contrast between one word O and the other one O-H. They are pronounced the same, O and O, but actually it's two different words. O is spelled O-H when it's a word that you use to say something like, oh my. Basically, that's what we call in grammar an exclamation. It's signaled by the fact there's usually an exclamation mark at the end. Let me give you an example. So let's say that there was a boy named uh, Mark and that he threw a brick in the air and when it came down, it landed on his head and he fell over stunned. You might say, oh, Mark, why did you do that? You'd use an exclamation mark and you'd write that O as O-H. But the word O spelled with just O is a totally different word. It's what we call in grammar a vocative. You use a vocative in order to invoke or to address someone. So if in Bible times you were in the presence of the king and you wanted to say something addressed to the king, you might say it like this, O king, live forever. You'd write that as just one plain O without the H because you're addressing the king formally. You're not exclaiming something about his behavior. Now, keep in mind, in modern English, we don't really use vocatives anymore, which is why it seems so odd to us to encounter them when we're reading older books or indeed the Bible. Still, it's cool to know that this stuff exists, and it's even cool sometimes to try to use it in your speech and to see whether or not anyone can tell the difference between O and O. 
And now Noah asks, is it true that if you pray out loud, Satan can hear you? And if you pray in your head, then Satan can't? Now, I've classified this as a fun question, mainly because it's so fun to think through a question like this. I'm sure we've all wondered at some point or another, can Satan hear us? Can he read our thoughts? So let's think about this biblically. If you pray out loud, do you know who can hear you? I can, assuming I'm in the room. And anybody who's there can also hear you, just like anyone can see what you're doing as long as they're there to witness it. So on one level, if you pray out loud, how could Satan not hear you? Well, the only way he couldn't hear you is if he wasn't in the room. So I guess the question is, is he in the room to hear what you're saying or to see what you're doing? Well, on the one hand, the Bible does not teach the omniscience of Satan or the omnipresence of Satan. So no, Satan isn't all-knowing. He cannot read your mind, and he's not everywhere all at once listening in on all of our prayers. On the other hand, we are warned in the Bible that Satan prowls like a lion seeking anyone he can devour and that we should be on our guard. As a result of that, I think it's fair to say that Satan is present just not the way that God is present. And really, Satan doesn't need to be present in that way. He doesn't need to be able to hear you or to read your mind because he knows what sinners are like. He knows our common tendencies and temptations. But let's set all of that aside and just consider one thing. Should we not pray out loud out of fear that Satan might hear us? Or maybe is it better just to pray in your head? Well, wouldn't that be the same as hiding your light? Wouldn't it be the same as keeping your actions concealed so that you don't suffer when people find out that you are a Christian? The Bible very clearly tells us to walk boldly and faithfully in the light. And I think if that's true for how we live, then surely it's true for how we pray as well. So I think we should pray boldly, regardless of who's listening. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.